I want to take us back three months to in the, the chronology of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary and the birth of John the Baptist. So three months before Jesus was born, John the Baptist was born. If you'll turn with me in Luke's Gospels, chapter 1, we pick up this story in verse 57. Luke 1, 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father. Every time I read that verse, I scratch my head. The man could not speak for nine months. He could hear just fine. But you know how it is. If Oh, well, go ahead. So they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. I love those verses 64, 65, and 66. They are verses that are filled with overflowing joy and happiness. There's Zechariah talking for the first time in nine months. I get the impression he would, he would talk to anybody who would stand still long enough to listen. He would just go and on. Can you imagine what, what it must have been like not to have been able to speak for nine months? uncomfortably long pause, wasn't it? Fred couldn't take the silence. He had to break the silence. Marriage counseling to be offered this afternoon. But you can just imagine the joy that would just come gushing out of Zachariah as he's, as he's now able to tell the story for the first time of being in the holy place. Offering incense on the altar of incense and the angel appearing to him and surprising him with this astonishing announcement that his barren old wife was going to give birth to a son. I, I, just details would have come flooding out of him. I can imagine just th 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 that evening, Zachariah continued to speak and I'm sure Elizabeth by this time is saying, 
please tone it down a little bit, okay? You've told the story 18,000 times now. Just tone it down. Go to sleep, Zachariah, please. I can't take any more of your talking. But he wasn't the only one. There were the neighbors who are described here as being in awe. Now, we use that word an awful lot these days for things that probably aren't truly awesome. I mean, that pizza at Pizza Hut is probably not really awesome. And, and maybe your child's the performance up here on the stage this morning was not really awesome. <laughs> We use that word a lot, but I, I suspect that there was a completely different sense to it as these neighbors were talking about this miracle of Elizabeth giving birth to a baby boy in her old age, hearing Zechariah tell the story of how this had been announced nine months earlier. This was something truly awesome. This was something that they hadn't heard in their lifetimes. This was something that Israel hadn't seen in 400 years awesome and then it's overflowing into an even larger circle it's the Judeans the hill country there around Jerusalem who were talking about all these things I just envisioned a tornado you know how tornadoes just gather up everything in their path and and it's whipping around in the air and this story is now going from door to door from village to village farther and farther out in concentric circles people hearing about the awesome things that God has done Zechariah's story is unleashed. A tornado of praise. Psalm 22, verse 3 in the King James Version says, God inhabits the praises of Israel. That's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? God inhabits the praises of Israel. It, it was changed in the New International Version, but there's a footnote, there's a, an alternate reading of that which says that God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. God is enthroned on the praises of Israel, the praises of His people. In, in light of the feeling so many have these days that God is absent, God is inattentive, God is dead in our secular culture. Isn't it heartening that when we praise Him, God is present? When we praise Him, He inhabits those praises. When we praise Him, He is enthroned. You know what enthroned means, right? It means the king is now sitting on the throne from which he rules. It means that his word is now dictating what is going to happen throughout the kingdom. He's the one who sets the rules, the laws, the standards for what it's going to be like to live in that kingdom. And when we praise him, he is enthroned in our lives and in our world despite what the naysayers might say, despite those who say there is no God. God is enthroned when we praise Him. Amen? 
I would suggest to you this morning that the prayer discipline of praise is one that we need to give our attention to. We do that as we gather together on Sundays, but each of us can spend time throughout the course of every day praising the Lord for His truly awesome deeds in our life. I wonder, in one sentence or a few words this morning, can you praise the Lord for something that He has done in you or through you? What is God doing in your life and how can you give Him praise? In just a sentence, say it in your big outdoor voice so we can hear you through your mass. Or what does God deserve praise? Stop the timing of the snow so the Deneens could make it here all the way from Barnstead. Every day is a gift for which we can praise God. He allows us to see our children grow up. God has saved, God has healed, God has sanctified, God has answered prayer. On and on and on our praise goes, does it not? So there was a question at the end of this passage, a question which was on everyone's lips. What then is this child going to be? All of this amazing, miraculous, awesome answer to Elizabeth and Zechariah's prayer. John is born. People are telling the story far and wide. And the question on everybody's lips, what then is this child going to be? Let's pick up the story in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He breaks into song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Second verse. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace." The first stanza of Zechariah's song is very reminiscent of Psalm 22, verses 3 through 5, if you want to go back to that this afternoon and compare the two. 
It's full of typical Old Testament language about a political rescue, a rescue from enemies, the surrounding nations who had tried to conquer Israel and oftentimes were successful. That's what this psalm is speaking about. It's using covenant language, referring to the covenant that God had made with Abraham and the covenant that he had made with David. It's a feeling that you get in that first stanza that that we are worthy, the Israelites are worthy of God's redemption, but our enemies are not. Right in, in the psalm, so often that's the feeling that you get. God had chosen a people for himself and there were enemies who were attacking them over and over again and they would call out, David and so many others would call out for God to rescue them from the hands of their enemies. So this is very much what that first stanza of Zechariah's song is all about. But if the first stanza is reminiscent of Psalm 22, the second stanza reminds us of Psalm 23. Ending with that phrase, to guide our feet into the path of peace. The Lord is my shepherd. In this stanza, Zechariah speaks in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about a rising sun that brings light to darkness. Praise God. A God who brings salvation from sin and death. And as much as the Canaanites or the Babylonians or the Romans might have been the enemy against whom they were asking God to bring down bolts of lightning, the universal enemy of every single last human being is sin and death, right? And that's what Zechariah is prophesying that this Messiah will bring. Salvation from sin, salvation from death. And then he mentions the tender mercy of the God of love. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? We serve a God who is tender and merciful. A God who holds our life in his hands tenderly. Mercifully. And in this second phrase, there's no distinction between us and them. This is a tender mercy that God intends to lavish on all people, all nations, every last one of us. So there's a shift from a political salvation in the first stanza to a love that conquers sin and death for all people in the second stanza. And this is truly awesome news since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Aren't you glad? Aren't you appreciative? Don't you praise a God who comes and offers us freedom from sin and death, salvation and forgiveness and mercy, tender mercy? John will be a prophet who will go before the God of love who is providing salvation for all people. He will love us with the passion of a bridegroom and the tender mercies of a parent. We've spent the last four Sundays in, John, in Luke chapter 1 here. Luke makes the case in this chapter that the 400-year prophetic silence in Israel has come to an ear-shattering end. 
Gabriel's conversations with Zechariah and, and, and Mary have broken the silence. And Mary and Zechariah's songs paint a picture of the kingdom which is full of hope and peace, joy and love. A love that will break forth in the birth and the life of Mary's son, Jesus. Or as the Apostle John in his gospel described it, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Good news? It may seem incongruous on this fourth Sunday of Advent to be talking about the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus and then to celebrate communion, the other end of his life, remembering his arrest, his trumped up trial, his crucifixion, just doesn't seem to go hand in hand. But it reminds us of the fact that Jesus was born for one purpose. He was born in order to die. His nativity was meant to set the stage for a life of servanthood. A servanthood to people like you and to me that would end on a cross. So this morning as we are celebrating this communion, this Lord's Supper together, let's keep that in mind. Jesus came to die that we might be set free from our sins. That His light might shine in the darkness of our lives and our world that we might know his hope and peace and joy and love.